a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. But before we get started with today's podcast, here's a short message from the Say the Damn Score marketing team. Hey, marketing team, get over here. I'm on my way. What's up? You need to tell our great listeners about the Critique Crew service. Oh, I'd be happy to. Say the Damn Score now offers a critique service. You send us 8 to 10 minutes of your work, and we have one of our nine expert broadcasters listen to your work and provide detailed written feedback of your strengths, weaknesses, and places you can improve. Many coaching and critique services are expensive, not ours. For just over 30 bucks, you can receive a professional critique of your work. Whether you're a young broadcaster coming up short in the job market or a veteran trying to reach the next level, for the price of a happy hour tab, you could be on your way to becoming a better broadcaster. Visit saythedamscore.com slash critique-crew or click on the Critique Crew link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Hey, production team, get back over here. Welcome to episode double nickel of the Say the Damn Score podcast. I've now said that 55 times. It's hard to believe, but if this is your first time tuning in, my name is Logan Anderson, a high school and small college play-by-play broadcaster in South Dakota. This podcast is dedicated to talking to sportscasters across the country for the purpose of learning the craft better and getting to know the great stories of the guests that come on. Right now, we are joined by the voice of the Marshall Thundering Herd, Steve Cotton. And Steve, how are you doing today? Doing well. It has been a fun fall and looking at a fun basketball season. So everybody's in a good mood in these parts. You just got back from New Mexico where you covered the the bowl game for Marshall, the Gildan New Mexico Bowl specifically. Give us the lift up the curtain a little bit for those of us at the small college and high school level of what it's like covering a bowl game, not necessarily the game itself, but all the pageantry and stuff around it. This was one of my favorite bowl experiences of all that we've been to. And we have been to several over the last 20 years at Marshall, but the uh, hosts do such a great job of trying to make sure everybody feels welcome and has a good time. And it's mainly the players have a good time, but those of us who are fortunate enough to be there as well are also beneficiaries of that. And uh, this was not only no exception, the folks in Albuquerque went above and beyond just to make sure everything was taken care of. On the professional side, it was uh, fairly easy in that that game is hosted by the University of New Mexico played at the Lobo Stadium. So you didn't have to worry about having lines for the broadcast ordered and installed. Everything was right there and working. But, again, just uh, above and beyond to make sure everybody has a good time. So I highly recommend it for anybody who ever gets to go be a part of a bowl week pretty much anywhere. It's well known that at those bowl games, the players get goodie baskets with stuff. Does the broadcaster get anything? 
No, not about. They do uh, like. There's always some sort of a media gift when you sign in. They were some of the uh, drink coolers, uh, the high quality ones. So we got those, and that's great. And I'll make use of that, but not the uh, gift suite like the players get now. What were you able to do? I'm not very familiar with that part of the country with Albuquerque. I think the only reason I really know about it is from Breaking Bad. But uh, what did you guys do in your free time? How do you balance having a good time, rewarding yourself for a long season, with still making sure you're good and solidly prepared for the game? Well, that goes first, and you take care of all your business, and then Hopefully you have an extra hour or two. You know, they actually have a Breaking Bad tour in Albuquerque. Uh, Some of the folks went and checked out some of the spots that those who are fans of the show would would know and recognize. I didn't do that. Uh, I managed to get away one afternoon with our uh, group. uh, The people in our fundraising organization took some people up to Santa Fe, which is an hour away. And I've always heard that that was a great town and managed to get up there for a couple of hours and go to dinner and so on. And that was great. So got to check that off the list. There is a uh, Albuquerque is at more than 5,000 feet altitude. And then just outside of town, there's a mountain range, the Sandia Mountains. And there's a tram that takes you up another 5,000 feet to above 10,000 feet. The views are just unbelievable. You're looking out over old, uh, long, long dead volcanoes and that kind of thing and it uh looks like some kind of crazy science fiction movie so managed to fit in that for that took about an hour hour and a half to uh do that one day so you get an hour here or there and you try to fit something in and uh again when you're at a new part of the world take advantage of that and go see some sites we hear often about how altitude affects players and how they play did you find that it messed with you as a broadcaster at all No, uh, I walked up through the stands at the stadium one day, and after about 40 rows, I was starting to feel it. But honestly, I just start to feel it when I'm going up through the stands at Marshall's home stadium, too. So, And I didn't really notice any uh, real effects on the players. Uh, Colorado State ran more than 80 plays, and the Marshall defense was still making plays at the end. So I don't know. uh, And part of that might be that, in a bowl week, it's a little different. You're out there a couple of extra days, and so they were able to get in more practices at altitude than when you're making a one-day trip in and out of some place. So maybe that helps. But I, I didn't really see a whole lot. Now, when we went up the tram to the top of the mountain range, I, definitely even walking up uh, a few steps up there, you felt it, it was a little bit different. Enough of the bowl week stuff. I've always just kind of wondered what has gone on uh, in that process. But we'll start off with one of the icebreakers that I use for just about everybody on this podcast is when did you first get the itch? And at what point in your life did you know that you were going to go into sports casting? You know, it's kind of crazy. I was actually a fan of sports on the radio before I was a sports fan. And uh, to kind of explain that a little bit, I grew up in the middle of uh, nowhere, northern Michigan, and is on a, my family had a potato farm, still has a potato farm there. But to this day, my cousins have kids who go to a one-room country schoolhouse like Little House in the Prairie. When I was there, it was kindergarten through eighth grade, and we had maybe 25 kids in the school. And 
there were no sports teams. Or just, you know, you're talking about a pretty wide range, wide range, and uh, not enough people of any age to to be on teams. And I had no interest. And most of my family to this day, you find a lot of them who don't know the difference between a pick and roll and a finger roll and a left tackle. And I was just like that. And I, uh, for my, I want to say seventh, yes, it would have been seventh birthday. My parents gave me a transistor radio and I would that summer take it to bed and listen to the music and I'm scrolling through the stations. And all of a sudden I just came across the sounds of Detroit Tigers baseball and little did I know that the guy calling the game was one of the greatest of all time, Ernie Harwell. But I had no idea what he was talking about in terms of the action, the sports, what was going on. But I was enthralled with the sounds and the excitement and the stories he told. And over a couple of years, I started to learn what was going on by listening to the, the radio and figuring out the sport of baseball and other eventually made uh, friends with other kids who were sports fans and involved a whole lot more than I had been those first few years of my life and learned a lot more about it. But whereas their favorite Detroit Tigers were Al Kaline or Norm Cash or Mickey Lolich, my favorite was always Ernie Harwell. And a few years later, uh, my world opened up a little bit more and I started to check out football and, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the guy at the time, University of Michigan's football announcer was Bob Eufer. And if you've not been able to hear, just uh, kind of Google and listen to some of his calls. A completely different style. He, he was kind of wild and crazy and would describe uh, a play as Anthony Carter catching a pass and taking off like he had a, hot, a penguin with a hot herring in his cummerbund. And just kind of wild and crazy, but still fascinating to a kid who, you know, is going through 10, 12 years old. Again, the excitement, uh, you hear the stories of this huge stadium full of crazy fans. And again, he was my favorite of, of that crew, just uh, the radio guy. And eventually, like a lot of us, I realized that uh, I was not going to make it as a professional athlete myself, but I thought it would be pretty cool to stay involved in sports and uh, settled in and got a few breaks along the way and ended up with a career in the radio booth. Have you ever in homage used the term a hot, a penguin with a hot herring in his cummerbund? No, that's a, <laughs> my style wouldn't, uh, wouldn't fit with that. I'm a little more laid back about uh, that kind of thing. And uh, he, he was, not a guy who held back at all though. And again, everybody has their own style and that works for him. And I was a real fan of that, but I could never pull it off myself. It wouldn't sound real. How would you describe your style? Somewhat, uh, laid back and in the continuum, more of a neutral as opposed to, the so-called Homer, that kind of thing. And I certainly broadcast from a Marshall University perspective, whatever the number be, 90% or whatever of the listeners are Marshall fans and they want to, to feel good and be excited when Marshall's doing well. So this broadcast is slanted that way. But I always try to appreciate that 
the other guys, the other team, the opponent is making good plays and they have scholarship players. And uh, it's not always that Marshall did well because it made a great play sometimes or that Marshall did well because Marshall messed up. Just sometimes it's uh, a deal where you acknowledge that the other team was better that day or had an outstanding effort and that kind of thing. So that's the way I go about it. Anybody who's listening certainly knows that that's a Marshall broadcast, but I, at least I think maybe others would listen and disagree, but I think uh, we're fairly down the middle as far as that goes. You went to a one-room schoolhouse? I did. And we had, uh, There was a row of bookcases down the middle, and on one side we had the little kids from kindergarten to third grade, and on the other side you had fourth through the eighth grade, and then eventually you got to go off to the big high school across the county. So that's interesting because a lot of the people that I have on this podcast, when I ask when's the first time they were able to get on the air, they say they got in as part of a, a high school program or were able to find a radio station that would allow them to to basically just be on the air because they had the drive and it was kind of cute to do so. I'm going to guess that your one-room school and maybe the big high school had one, but when was the first time you got on the air? It was not until relatively uh, late in my college career. I liked the idea of radio, but uh, when I got to high school, uh, it was shortly after I started high school that the company that my mom and dad both worked for, my dad had gotten out of the family farming business. My uncle took that over, and they worked for a company uh, in a town about 20 miles away that moved to Gainesville, Florida, right as I got to high school. So I went to high school in Gainesville, went to the University of Florida, and actually started out and was within a couple of semesters of an electrical engineering degree. But decided I didn't want to do that. I was going to switch at least to a different uh, kind of engineering, become a mechanical or civil engineer or something. And just the way the clock worked uh, and what was going to happen for another semester and that kind of thing, I said, you know what, I'm going to take one semester of broadcasting classes because I thought about that. I've talked about it my whole life. And since I've, I need to be set back a little bit anyway, I'm going to take that one semester classes and see what happens. Well, fell in love with it, decided then that that was the way I wanted to go. So I was actually uh, more than three years into college before I took broadcasting classes, went to try out for the audition for the sports staff at WRUF AM and FM radio, which is the university of Florida's uh, campus station, but it's also a bit unusual that it's a commercial station. And it was uh, students mainly doing the on-air jobs, but there was a full-time professional sports director who oversaw the student sportscasters, a full-time news director who oversaw the news uh, operation and the program director, over the DJs and that kind of thing. And then there was a full-time professional sales staff. So we went about it that way. And that was the outlet for the uh, University of Florida baseball broadcast. You had the Gator Network handled football and basketball, but not baseball. This was uh, the station where those games were broadcast. The sports director was the main play-by-play guy, but if students were interested and showed that they deserved a shot at it. You could uh, become a part of the Florida baseball broadcast. And at that point, I was still all in on a career as a baseball broadcaster. That was my plan rather than going into the college route. And uh, things didn't work out that way. But 
so that was the thought. And uh, I would like to say it was more than three years into my college career before I was ever on the air. Did you feel like in college you had to play catch up with the people that had started earlier? A little bit, yes. Uh, and I was in a class, uh, just the, the intro to broadcasting class, and the sports director from the station came and spoke to that class just about the opportunities. And so I talked with him afterwards, and it turned out that they, within a couple of days they were having auditions. And I want to say that uh, there were probably close to 20 people who tried out to end up being uh, maybe four of us were selected to go onto the sports staff. And I really was surprised when I was one of the four or five or whatever it was who were chosen because I assumed all those other students had a leg up on me already. And I thought, you know, next semester, maybe I'll try again. But it turned out that uh, I was picked and got to jump in pretty much immediately just a few weeks after my first semester in the College of Journalism and in the telecommunications program. So what was your first professional break? Reading up, it says that I believe your first job was at Carson Newman University. How did you end up with that position? Well, I finally made it to graduation and had no idea. And this was uh, 1987, so pre-internet and no... I was one year old. I just want you to know that. Job opportunity. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, making me feel pretty old now. <laughs> and really, uh, there were a couple of broadcasting magazine had a help wanted section, but there just weren't uh, a lot of avenues to hear about job openings, many of them that uh, you, you can find today. So one of the things I did was uh, just got on the phone and started calling phone numbers for minor league baseball teams and Hopefully somebody, a GM or whomever, would talk to me and got shot down time after time, but they just didn't have an opening. A couple of places uh, did have, you know, would say someone would know of a team in their league that might be hiring someone, and I found a couple of openings and sent stuff off to, but never even heard back, never got an interview. So I'm getting close to graduation. I was at that point uh, a regular on the Florida baseball broadcast crew. And just, I I don't know know why I thought this was a good idea. Maybe just out of naivety or what. And uh, Florida closed out the regular season with a series at Vanderbilt. And instead of going with the team, I said, I'm going to go up and look for a job. And after the series ended, I spent the night in Nashville, got up the next day, and called, got up the yellow pages and called every radio station in Nashville, asking if they were hiring a sports guy. Nobody was. And uh, so I started making my way. Oh, the other part of the story is that uh, the Southeastern Conference Tournament was at the University of Georgia a few days later. So I made my way as far as Knoxville, spent the night and did the same thing. Got up and called every station I could find there and then was going to head on to Athens, Georgia for the tournament. And literally the last station on the list, when I called and I was going to put the book away and get in the car and head on to Athens, said, well, no, we don't have an opening, but I think a station in Jefferson City just lost its news and sports director, and uh, you may want to give them a call, and which I did. And an hour later, I was sitting in the studios interviewing for a job that I just learned about a few minutes before. 
And long story short, uh, about a week later, I got the call and I said, uh, come on up here. We're hiring you. And part of that station's uh, part of the job duties were to be involved in the Carson Newman football broadcast. And things just progressed from there. Was there ever a point when you were making those calls where you're like, "Ah, I just want to be done and go out and get some pizza or drink a beer or something like that as a college kid that you had to push through? Because the fact that that was the very last one you called is just a crazy story to me. Yeah, I I was stubborn enough, I guess, and naive enough that I was going to go through the whole list and... So I made it there, and there, it was not that I ever thought about stopping before I, I got to that last one. But, yeah, you, when you think about it, it is kind of crazy just to hunt for a job that way. And somehow it worked out, and there I was. Just a couple of weeks later, I was living in Jefferson City, Tennessee, and Carson Newman was at that time in the NAI and a power in football. The school had won three national championships in the previous four seasons and would go on to win two more in the four years that I was there. So uh, that was a good spot to land. And when the season rolled around, I'm doing play-by-play of a football game for the very first time in my life. I had never done play-by-play of a high school game or anything else. Again, my plan had been to be a baseball broadcaster. And... It is number one Carson Newman against number two Hillsdale College, first and second ranked teams in NAIA. And it was a close game. It went down to the very end. And thank goodness there is no tape of that broadcast because I was awful, had no idea what I was doing, but that's what got me started. So was there a mentor at that station that was able to kind of teach you the craft of calling football, or did you just have to figure it out on your own? Definitely a mentor, and it is, uh, funny enough, the name is Stan Cotton, but no relation. Stan's the Wake Forest radio man now, C-O-T-T-E-N. My name's spelled C-O-T-T-O-N, but uh, we've been great friends for a quarter of a century, and uh, we go on family vacations together, and his daughters call me Uncle Steve, so we might as well be related, I guess. But Stan had been doing the games there for several years, And Carson Newman was a big enough deal in that neighborhood that most of the home games were televised on a Knoxville station. And so when they were on TV and that first game was number one against number two, Stan would do the television. I would do the radio play-by-play. When they were not televised or when we were on the road, Stan handled the the radio play-by-play, and I did color with him. So he was a veteran, a pro a very talented broadcaster, and I was fortunate to learn a whole lot from him very quickly. And we'd talk about every single broadcast and go back and listen to it. And uh, I was able to, I think, improve pretty quickly and was uh, a much different football broadcaster at the end of that first year than I was when we played that first game. You know, that was on the list of things that I did want to get to was your relationship with Stan where you essentially you know, took over full-time for him at Carson Newman after he left. You followed him after he left Marshall. At any of those times, did they ever mix you up or accidentally call you Stan? Oh, quite a bit, and uh, there's a, a bit of a funny story. 
involved with that. Stan and I both went by our real names while we were at Carson Newman together for four years. I actually left there, went back to the University of Florida where I did women's basketball and baseball in Gainesville, and Stan was still at Carson Newman for another year. He then got the job at Marshall University, and I ended up deciding at that point and kind of thought that I wasn't going to get the the break to a full-time radio job and I might need to think about a plan B, decided to go to grad school and Stan convinced me to go to Marshall and that he would put me to work. I was the sideline reporter for the football broadcast and uh, did uh, color with him for the basketball broadcast and we did some baseball and, and whatever. But because there had been some confusion with Cotton and Cotton, in the Carson Newman years, when I came to Marshall, we decided to avoid that, and I went by the name Steve Glenn. Glenn's my middle name. And so for three years, two as a sideline, sideline reporter for football, and then one in the booth with uh, Stan as the color analyst, I was Steve Glenn. He was Stan Cotton. And when he then got the job at Wake Forest, and a few weeks later, Marshall hired me, named me as the full-time replacement, well, I went back to being Steve Cotton, and there's a great letter, I have it tucked away somewhere, sent to the editor of the uh, Herald Dispatch, the Huntington newspaper, ripping Marshall for passing over Steve Glenn, who had done a great job <laughs> and had earned his opportunity, and giving the job to Stan Cotton's son, and nobody's ever even heard of him. <laughs> and uh, so that that was eventually we got the word through to the person that, uh, yeah, you're a little confused on that. We understand the confusion, but nepotism was not involved. That's really funny. Um, when you got to Marshall, you got there. Uh, I mean, I'm not steeped in Marshall history, but I'm going to guess what was very close to the golden age of Marshall football, where your first year is full time play by play guy was, I believe, Randy Moss's first year as wide receiver at Marshall, followed by Byron Leftwich and Chad Pennington. Obviously, a broadcaster's success is not necessarily associated with the quality of the team, but that had to be a lot of fun to have as, as to start a position off with. Well, you're right. It was fun, but it also was very helpful in that Marshall had uh, built a very strong 1AA football program, now FBS, but in those days known as 1AA. Under Jim Donnan, Marshall won the 1992 National Championship and had lost the 1995 National Championship in uh, Stan's last football game there. And uh, again, I was the color analyst for that season. Well, Marshall returned most of its team, would have been the number one team in the preseason poll the following year, even before Randy Moss ends up joining the team in uh, August, right before fall camp that season. So Marshall goes on to just run the table. I think uh, most people would still say it's the best FCS team ever. There was no game closer than 14 points. The herd went 15-0. and You have Randy Moss doing his thing. Other guys on that team ended up playing in the NFL. And then uh, the next season – Chad Pennington, who had registered that year in 1996 because when Jim Diamond left and went to the University of Georgia, Marshall hired an alumnus, Bob Pruitt, who had been the defensive coordinator for Steve Spurrier at the University of Florida. 
and he brought along with him Danny Werfel's backup quarterback, Eric Kresser, who had one year of eligibility remaining. And so Pennington had played as a true freshman, taken Marshall to the national championship game, and then redshirted. So here we are, 1996, Eric Kresser's the quarterback, and then Chad Pennington in 1997 is throwing to Randy Moss, two first-round draft picks ultimately. And uh, Marshall made the most successful jump from one double A up to Division One A that anyone ever had. That first year went ten and three and won the uh, championship in its new league, the Mid American Conference, and played in uh, the Motor City Bowl at the Pontiac Silverdome and went toe to toe with Ole Miss. So it was uh, kind of crazy to start off that way, but. Jumping back to the importance of that to me as a broadcaster, Marshall had had some very good play-by-play guys in the previous few years, including uh, Bill Roth, who went on and has had such an amazing career at Virginia Tech and now has gotten out of the day-to-day play-by-play stuff at the school, but is still involved uh, calling games for ESPN and that kind of thing. And then Wes Durham, now the voice of the Atlanta Falcons, had been at Marshall. And then Stan, who has had a spectacular career at Wake Forest. So Marshall fans were used to really high-quality radio guys, and it certainly helped me that all the listeners are happy all the time. When you're winning 15 consecutive games and uh, blowing everybody out, and as the radio guy, I'm just uh, time after time, several times a game, saying touchdown heard. And even beyond that, when basketball started, it was probably the fifth or sixth game of the season. Marshall had a guy named Keith Veeney who made 15 three-pointers in one game, and that is still the NCAA record. So it went right over into basketball season. It was a hugely successful year. The basketball team made it to the finals of the Southern Conference Tournament in overtime, lost on a last-second shot to almost go to the NCAA Tournament. And all of that success helped me, uh, and along with the fact that my voice was familiar. I'd been there a couple of years in a secondary role in the broadcast. But all of that really helped me break in and uh, become uh, just uh, something that the fans were accustomed to and seemed to be happy with right away. So this podcast is mostly about broadcasting. Every now and then I'll dabble into the actual sports, and this is going to be one of those occasions because – you said something that I found interesting. I did not know that you were there during the transition from 1AA to what is essentially FBS at this point. What time, how did Randy Moss dominate 1AA players? That had to just be absurd. Well, it was. But then, as we made the move into 1A in the Mid-American Conference, it was just as absurd he made guys at the Citadel and at VMI look kind of crazy when he caught you know, as many as four touchdown passes in a game, or he also caught four touchdown passes in two playoff games against Delaware and against Montana in the national championship game. But then you make the jump to 1A, and uh, I think four or five weeks into the season, we're playing Ball State, the defending Matt champion, and he catches five touchdown passes in that game. And then a year later, he is making the Lions and the Bears look just as silly. So that uh, it, it wasn't just uh, the, the poor guys at the Citadel. That's just uh, an athlete that I'll never watch anyone like him play again. So he had the famous play with the 90-yard catch-and-run versus Army that is 
you see on highlights probably still to this day at times. And I've, I'm curious, I'm sure that your call has been played associated with that clip over and over again. Is that something that, did you like your call and the way that you did that huge play that was remembered forever, or did you not like it? Well, I, the latter, because I had some bad allergies, and I just didn't have much of a voice. And even though I was about as excited watching it as you could possibly be, it was uh, a fairly monotone, just because I was putting everything I could just to get the words out. So it is not one of my favorite calls, although it just with the especially when you're watching it with a video or anyone who's seen it and uh, hears the play and can still see it in their mind that his athleticism and that hurdle carries the play just fine, even with me struggling through it. The other famous play that I know that I remember was the Byron Leftwich broken leg game. Tell us what it was like calling that moment in martial history. That was kind of crazy. The injury happened fairly early in the game. We did not know, even for a couple of weeks, the word hadn't gotten out that his leg was actually broken. He left the stadium they took him to the nearby hospital for some x-rays. He came back, the legs wrapped up, and were under the assumption that he's not going to play just because of how badly he was limping on the way off. And all of a sudden, he's out there and throws a pass. And even and we were at the old Rubber Bowl at Akron, and even the Akron crowd starts just kind of going crazy after the pass completion. And I looked down to jot down whatever note. And so I wondered what was going on and looked up and saw the two martial offensive linemen picking him up and running him down the field 20 yards or something to get him back to the line of scrimmage. And then it just keeps going on and on. And that was almost uh, just hard to believe what you were seeing. And ultimately, he helped Marshall make a comeback, but Akron ended up winning the game. Really, nobody even remembers that. A lot of people think and have talked to me about that and said, yeah, that was crazy how he led him back to a victory. Well, he didn't lead him back to a victory, but it was such a crazy story that uh, that's the way it kind of fell into people's minds long term. So you have been the West Virginia Sportscaster of the Year eight different times in your career. You don't get into broadcasting for awards, I'm sure, but what do those mean to you? Well, uh, I'm not really hung up on the fact that I've won it, but what that means is you get to go to the National Sports Media Convention and spend some time in, uh, well, for many years it was in Salisbury, North Carolina. It last year moved to Winston-Salem, and all your heroes, the guys you've grown up are showing up and they're hanging out with you and they're telling stories. And you know, you've mentioned the, the Byron Leftwich story. Well, I've heard the Willis Reed story from people who were there and the, the, you have your functions and that kind of thing. But the best part of that is sitting around after everything closes down and listening to Peter Gammons tell stories and Bob Ryan tells stories, and that is what's fabulous about that event. So that's why I'm, I'm happy 
when I learned that I've won one is uh, not anything about, hey, that's great for me. It's that, wow, I get to go spend time with Vern Lundquist and hear his stories, and that's what uh, that means to me the most. I mean, I've gone there three times. You don't have to win anything to go there. <laughs> well, I, right. I guarantee and you I've never won. Uh, well, and, and I do, and especially since they've, in recent years, put some things together for some networking opportunities for uh, younger broadcasters and people trying to move up in the business and that kind of thing. I do highly recommend that uh, people who can make their way there, yes, take advantage of that. If it's uh, something you can fit in, it is a worthwhile trip. So on your Twitter handle, it says, fan of Mickey Lolich, Woodcarver, and fan of a town that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Uh, let's start off with the woodcarving. Oh, Tequamanon Falls. Yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> Tequamanon Falls in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah, Tell us spot. where that is and why you like it. Oh, it's, it's uh, I believe I'm right in that it's the second largest waterfalls uh, east of the Mississippi behind only Niagara Falls in the continental United States. So out in the middle of nowhere, just uh, a beautiful waterfall setting, nice nature walk for you. And wood carving, kind of an unusual hobby. Don't hear a whole lot of people who enjoy that. What is, uh, how did you get into that? Well, again, the uh, kind of farm life is something where my whole family is very self-sufficient. My dad was always a very good woodworker and built a lot of the cabinetry and anything they needed. You know, you needed a coffee table. Well, they didn't go buy one. Dad built one. And he was a 4-H woodworking teacher. I took those classes and always enjoyed it. And when my mom and dad retired, and they kind of got it backwards, they retired down in Gainesville, Florida, and moved back to Michigan. So the retirees went back north and uh, settled on the farm again. Dad needed a hobby. Mom said, yeah, we'll go back to Michigan, but I'm not going to spend all winter there every year. We're going to get away some. So dad had his wood shop and he was content with that, but he couldn't pack that up and take it with him when they went back to Florida, or went out to Arizona in the winter. And he started, uh, somebody told him, well, you need to try some wood carving. If that's small enough. You take a couple of knives and chisels and a small piece of wood and you can do it anywhere. And so one summer, oh, it's probably 12 or 13 years ago at this point, I went home to visit and saw a little wooden cowboy boot and asked what that was all about. He said, oh, you can do that too. You're a good woodworker. And I picked up a knife and started and went from there. I've uh, made quite a hobby out of it. I really enjoy it. And I kind of have football season, basketball season, baseball season, and then carving season for a couple months in the summer. What is the favorite single item that you have carved? What most people seem to enjoy the most are uh, Christmas things, Santa Clauses, that kind of thing. Uh, so I do more of that than any, but uh, what I like carving most is some little baseball player characters. <laughs> if I can learn how to paint that old English D just a little bit better on the finished carving, I'll be happy with it. That's fantastic. Walk us through your preparation process for well, since we're in basketball season, we'll start there. Take us through how you prepare for a basketball game. Well, I uh, try as early as possible to, to build my charts, and I keep those with me pretty much all the time, and that's for football as well. I try to do it early in the week in football, and I carry those charts, uh, the spotter sheets, just so even if I'm watching TV during commercial breaks, I'd look down and do a little more memorization and, and that sort of thing. 
Same thing for basketball, not as much memorization is involved, and especially after you get to conference play and you're playing guys that uh, that you recognize, you know, half of the team or more from the previous year, that's not as important. All the memorization part doesn't take as much time. But for basketball, what I try to do is add in uh, trips to watch practice and especially the portion of practice when they do the scouting report on the opponent. And then uh, I'm fortunate enough that the team will give me the actual scouting reports. And on top of that, when we go more on the road, I can, you know, they allow me to do it at home too, but I'm kind of with my other duties, don't do it as often. But when they go watch film of the opponent. So by the time you get through all of that, you talk especially to the coach who's in charge of that opponent's scouting report, get his breakdown on some of the ways you want to defend the star player and uh, what kind of plans they have. You put all that together, and I think you're, you've gotten yourself in pretty good shape to do a quality broadcast, both in terms of the nuts and bolts of calling the play-by-play, but being able to add in. And you also talk that over with your color analyst. And, you know, here's what you're going to – in the pregame show, you cover this, I'll hit on this, and try to strip it out a little bit so we sound uh, pretty fluid through all of that. So that, that's how I kind of put together the basketball broadcast. So we're recording this after uh, a doubleheader last night, and it just had me thinking a little bit because it was one of those games where everything that could go wrong before the game with the equipment and and such just went wrong. We ended up getting on the air probably one minute before tip-off. We just got everything there. And in that situation, I was struggling with the equipment. I wasn't able to talk to the coaches, and I just felt like, I felt unprepared, which is usually something that I never do. And I guess I wanted to ask you, since you've been in the business a long time, I'm certain you've had those days where everything just went wrong. How do you keep your head in a space where you don't get thrown off your groove when things don't go right? Well, that's difficult. It's one of the hardest things, probably. And yes, we have all been there, and even at the so-called higher levels, Division One or in pro sports, the guys I talk to, it happens to all of them. And one of the, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that I was a couple of semesters away from an electrical engineering degree. So I have a little bit better footing than some people on taking care of the technical difficulties. And I've even uh, a couple of times uh, cut wires in half, cut cables in half and spliced wires and managed to get on air that way but it's all about trying to maintain your calm and then when you finally are on the air and even if it's holding that phone up to your ear and calling a game that way if it gets down to that right right away even you don't have all the bells and whistles for me in that situation it is simply get to the nuts and bolts who has the ball where is it give the time give the score and eventually you'll settle down and you'll get back into the floor of your regular broadcast. But do the nuts and bolts, keep it simple, and uh, try to work your way through it that way. So you say that you've you know, cut and spliced wires to make things working. Give us the most unusual occurrence that has happened when you were, I'm going to use the word, MacGyvering a setup to make it work. Well, it was... Uh, early in my time at Marshall and uh, Stan was still the main play-by-play guy. 
and we had a 1AA playoff game. The football team went to Boise, including the broadcast engineer who handled the sporting events. And so that left a couple of us to go with the basketball team. Billy Donovan was the rookie head coach at Marshall for the basketball team. We went to Cincinnati and played in the Bearcat Classic, and the engineer had packed a few things up, and uh, for the, I guess uh, this is a technical enough broadcast uh, audience, they can understand some of the broadcast terms, but he had given us something where you could patch into a mic-level feed, but we needed a line-level feed. And uh, we got right up to, we were a few minutes away from, so we were supposed to go on the air, and I was fairly certain that I knew what we needed to do, and it was it took me that long to convince the other guy that hey because he did he he thought that as soon as we cut away or we were totally messed up and but I convinced him I said listen just believe me go with me took some scissors cut the wire got the bare wires and plugged them into a couple of posts and we got a line level output and all of a sudden we were on the air and the listeners knew nothing had happened or didn't know anything had happened because uh, we were still all oh, several seconds at least away from the open when we were on the air. <laughs> that's that's a crazy story. I wish I had the ability to do that. That would be awfully convenient at times. What were some other, you know, broadcast horror stories, so to speak, where something went horribly wrong, you had a bad broadcast location, you had uh, a whole bunch of uh, angry fans spilling beer on you. I mean, it really could be anything. Uh, just give us a give us a few examples of some of those stories from your career. Well, I've had uh, a couple of weird things happen on the road in basketball games and places you wouldn't think. For instance, one was at George Washington University, and I thought, well, how in the world can they not be ready for the opponent to come in and broadcast? But something had happened, and they had me broadcast from, it was sort of a hallway off the end of the arena, out of behind the basket. And the cheerleaders were in front of me, and fans were walking in front, and there was just almost no view, just shaded off, screened off from, it felt like half the action all game long. And I've had a couple of other uh, things like that. And my philosophy in that, though, is I don't talk about it. I just try to broadcast the best I can. The listeners don't care about my problems. They just want to know what's happening in the game. And so... I do the best I can, and uh, I hope that the people listening in don't even know I've had that problem. I live in South Dakota, which is very, very rural and blue-collar, and I don't want to pretend to be an expert of West Virginia, but the the kind of perception that I already have is that they are very rural and blue-collar, and in those type of situations— I've found that radio is more important maybe than it would be in a big city with lots of options and ways to uh, experience your favorite team. How important is it? How important is the radio guy in your situation in West Virginia and Huntington? I think you're exactly right. That's a great observation, and it is very important and probably more so than it is in a lot of other spots, like you say. And that popped one story uh, into my head, and uh, I, sometimes I hesitate to tell this story because 
I don't want it to sound like this is a story about me and boy, he's done a great job because it's not. This is a story about radio and the medium and the connection to the audience. We were probably six or seven years ago at a uh, summer coaches tour fundraising event. And I, my, I am employed by the athletic department. So that's uh, one of the things I'm involved with when the seasons, you know, when I'm not on the road actually broadcasting. And after an event, it was a big kind of cookout sort of thing. I can see and, and the coaches are the stars. And uh, sometimes we have student athletes there as well, but mainly the athletic director, the coaches, and I go there and MC, and, and that's the deal. We pack up and leave. But someone was hanging out, and instead of going to talk to the coaches, like most of the people are there, he's kind of waiting till I break away. And I, I saw this out of the corner of my eye, so I you know, broke off the conversation and went over and, to say hello. And it was an older man who had some physical difficulties and uh, kind of a frail person. He walked very slowly, but he was holding a football and then pulled out a pen. And every once in a while, someone will ask me for an autograph. So it's not normal, but I'm not totally taken aback by it anymore. And he asked me if I'd sign a football. I said, sure. And then I looked at the football and the only, there were signatures on there. Bob Pruitt, the coach who had led Marshall to such a, a great, uh, well, the national championship game and a 13-0 season and a top-10 ranking after the move to 1A in 1999 with Chad Pennington at quarterback. Bob Pruitt, Chad Pennington, and Randy Moss. And I said, sir, I forget his name even now. I wish I could remember it. I said, do you have something else I can sign? Because this has value. Randy Moss is going to be in the Hall of Fame one of these days. And my name, my signature on there is going to hurt the value of this football. And he just looked at me and said, Steve, I had the best years of my life going to those football games. And when I see those pictures in my mind, I hear your voice with it. I'm not signing, I'm not selling this football ever this is for me because i love it and would you please sign my damn ball (laughs) i said yes sir and it didn't matter who the marshall radio guy was it wasn't because it was me it was the connection between the listener and the person who is privileged to sit in that seat and wear the microphone and uh that was a that was a pretty good lesson for me along those lines Another connection between the listener and you that I found in my research for this podcast is that sometimes you get your name recognized when you go through the drive-thru or your voice recognized when you go through the drive-thru. How many times has that happened? It's, it's regular. That, uh, you see, when, if I'll talk to a cashier or place an order at the, at the restaurant... You see, you see some head snap around, and Huntington isn't the biggest place. Marshall's very important here for many reasons, and included in that is you go back to 1970 and the tragedy with the plane crash, and the school and the community are very much tied together from that day forward. And so uh, Marshall's important to a lot of people here, and they pay attention, and they do tune in. So, yeah, and plus I'm loud. 
So my voice carries, and you know, four rows over, you might see somebody snapping their head, and that's always kind of cool, I think. Does it ever get weird? Oh, you, you uh, might get some people, and, and it happens most where uh, you're somewhere and there is a bar involved where people might get a little extra friendly or uh, they've lost some of their inhibitions and they they feel like you're more of a friend to them than you really are, and uh, you get taken aback sometimes by that if they're somewhat aggressive. Usually, very, very rarely, though, has it been a bad situation and it gets really uncomfortable. But, uh, yeah, sometimes you have to have to make your way out of it a little bit. You mentioned the the plane crash and the movie that they made of it, and I wasn't going to bring that up initially because, I mean, you weren't here during that time frame. But what does that, ex- I don't know if experience is the right word, what does that event in martial history, like what type of connection does that continue to have with the athletic program? Well, it is still uh, something today where the survivors are still here. It's now, you know, moving up on 50 years since it happened, but the, uh, and especially the, the sons and daughters of those who were on the plane, and it wasn't just the team, and that's probably where it ties Marshall and the community together, because it was the boosters. It was the local physicians and politicians and the bankers they were on the plane as well. So everybody in the community knew someone. It wasn't just the, the, those kids on campus that the rest of the community rarely got to intermingle with. So it brought the, and, and then along the lines, and the people who've seen the movie know, it was really touch and go whether Marshall would bring football back. And it was the community stepping up and making that happen. So, Whereas uh, most of us have seen some schools where it's a little bit where the university and the town kind of butt heads on a lot of things, that's not the case at Marshall. And having grown up sort of in the SEC, I can compare it uh, this way, that you don't have the numbers, you don't have 90,000 people, you don't have tailgates going on for miles and miles, but the passion is there. It's kind of like a vest pocket sized version of an SEC school. That's how important Marshall and Marshall athletics are to the people in Huntington and what we call here the tri-state area. So that's, uh, it, it's also kind of cool to see, that's for sure. So there's a couple questions that I ask just about everyone who comes on this broadcast. And I, I started a new one in my last show. Uh, started what I like to call broadcast confessions something that you've never done or never experienced in broadcasting that that most other people have. My example for that is I've never listened to one inning of Vin Scully calling baseball. A foolish decision, albeit, but I just, for whatever reason, never got that to happen. What would your broadcast confession be? Oh, my. Uh... I don't watch, uh, kind of, uh, this would be similar, and, and not that I haven't listened at all, but I'm not really a hockey guy, and I know we all as broadcasters should, should listen to Doc Emmerich, and I really don't do it. So, uh, I, I, and every year I kind of say, you know what, I need to just make a point to do that just to 
because those times I do hear him, the, the use of language and the way he uh, is so vivid with his descriptions would help all of us. So it's kind of a cop-out. I'm, I'm tagging right along with your Vin Scully story there, but uh, that, that would be mine, I guess. What do you do to this day, being a longtime veteran and a successful play-by-play guy, what do you still do to get better? Well, I go back, and I think uh, listening to yourself, doing that self-critique is important. I've recently changed the way I do that, though. For many years, I wanted to nail the big play, that memorable moment. I was just kind of the, the nightmare for me was messing those up and the ones that will go down and be played for years and years to be a, a call that I'm not happy with. And so I spent an inordinate time critiquing those big plays and how I could do those better. But in the last couple of years, I try to critique more of the mundane and make sure that I'm doing it as well as I can, doing the best job I can at making what could become a boring segment of play interesting, doing a better job at fitting in some stories or carrying carrying uh, with uh, – the storylines of the day in a blowout in the fourth quarter of a game that uh, you're struggling to keep the listeners involved in a 30 point basketball game with three minutes to go. So I'm really trying to do a better job of keeping the broadcast relevant in those stretches. What are a couple things that you found that of those mundane moments that you didn't do as well as you like, and how did you fix it? I try to carry in some extra preparation work on uh, things like the history of the rivalry. Make sure I can quickly recall something that the fans would remember the last time or 20 years ago or whatever it might be that when Marshall played Toledo. We had a broadcast with Toledo last week. So I went a lot more into the history. So that's helpful at times. Also, just uh, some of the topics of the day. You know, what, what's the news of the day, trying to be relevant with that. That's better than, you know, a pass to the left wing, back up top, when you're looking at a 40-point ball game and only a couple of minutes to go. You also mentioned on things to do when the score is lopsided, outside of maybe some of those extra stories. How do you focus on making blowouts interesting? Well, again, it's uh, kind of back to the stories. I try to just talk to the players a lot, sit down at team meals, get somebody. We have a couple of players uh, on the basketball team right now who are from Europe, um, one from Serbia, another from Croatia. And so I try to come up with something interesting. And it doesn't have to be the foreign players. It's uh, also a guy who grew up, you know, 10 minutes away from Huntington. Get it, something you can fit into the ad let the inform the listeners something that they might not know about those kids and uh, do it that way. It's just, uh, and, and I also, uh, and, and I'm a stats guy. I love stats. It just it personally interests me, but I really try to get away from bogging down the broadcast with stats. Give me stories, give me some anecdotes. And, uh, and especially when you're trying to fill some time with, because the, broad, the game itself isn't that interesting. I think that's a pretty solid way to do so. So I want you to go back in time to, um, before you were at the Division One level, where did you find some of those stories when you didn't necessarily have access to the players or 
in some cases, even the coaches before you do a broadcast? Well, I uh, fortunately, I typically have had that. And I, I know that's not there for everybody. But uh, I've worked for the athletic department eventually at Carson Newman. I only worked for that radio station I went to at first for about six months. And then I had a job within the athletic department. So I've always been around the student athletes and the coaches and had pretty good access. But if I couldn't do that, I would be talking with other folks in the media, at least uh, even if it's the opponent, trying to find out that interesting story, the interesting factoid and tidbit about somebody who will be out there when, if need be, I can uh, fill 30 seconds with uh, something that makes people go, huh. I've always told when I speak to broadcasting classes and so on, I like to have three or four things in a broadcast where people go, oh, huh, didn't know that. That's interesting. And if you do that, two or three or four times a game, I think people appreciate appreciate you pretty well. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to if you have a day off, both maybe on the national level and some of the regional people that most people may not know about? Well, I still love listening to baseball. Baseball on the radio is uh, my favorite thing, so... Uh, the greatest thing in the world was the MLB app, and you can listen to every broadcast. So, uh, and, and even in this area, Marty Brenneman with the Reds, we can listen to just on over the air. So uh, he's one I enjoy. Uh, Pat Hughes with the Cubs is one uh, that I'll check out. John Miller out in San Francisco, I think, is uh, one of the greatest. Uh, and then the, the more regional guys or the college guys, uh, well, my, my Good buddy Stan Cotton, I listen to Wake Forest all the time, both because I'm interested in what they're doing for him, but also he's one of the people I listen to, to the broadcast part of it, the technical side, and he uh, comes up with a good turn of a phrase or something that I'll go ahead and steal. I don't mind stealing it at all. Um, Paul Keels at Ohio State, guy that uh, we're able to listen to easily here. Uh, another guy from Michigan when I was a kid, I listened to George Blaha, who's still going strong, calling football for the Spartans and doing the Detroit Pistons. So, uh, somebody you may not have heard of, but you want to tune in and listen to, check out Miami of Ohio, Steve Baker. There's a guy who could be calling games for anybody, anywhere at the very highest levels. You'll, uh, enjoy his broadcast and learn something if you want to go about listening that way from him. So check out the Red Hawks sometime. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Easiest things via Twitter, at Herd Cotton, H-E-R-D-C-O-T-T-O-N. And uh, I'm on that just about every day, so probably the, the quickest and easiest way to get through to me. How did you develop um, a – I don't know. Hang on. I wanna, I'm going to edit this out. How did you develop the perception that you want people to have on social media? Obviously, that was not there when you started in broadcasting. It's something you've had to learn. How did you figure all of that out, how you wanted to do social media? Well, I didn't have a clue at, at the first. Uh, in fact, I just didn't get into it for a couple of years after a lot of people were. I'm not even sure how many years I've been doing it now, but it's several, and what I developed immediately as a niche that uh, people seem to latch on to, and basically I, the only way I uh, judge that is that that's what seems to get retweeted and uh, sent around. 
I, I am big into history, Marshall's history. And so I do a lot of uh, telling stories on the day after football games that yesterday's, you know, rushing performance by somebody was the best since blah, blah, blah. So doing you know, some perspective things, some historical things, jumping into the stats. I, I mentioned earlier I don't try to just jam the broadcast full of stats. Well, my Twitter session on the day after ball games that is full of stats. And I figure, hey, people want to see it, they'll be there. And if not, it's easy for them to ignore it at that point rather than if I'm forcing it to them while I'm on the air. So a lot of numbers and, uh, again, the history and uh, going back that way seems to be somewhat popular among the Marshall fans. So that's where I've kind of fallen in, and that's my niche there. Once again, we are visiting with Steve Cotton. He is the voice of the Marshall Thundering Herd. And, Steve, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate you coming on. Sure thing, Logan. Enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.